Welcome to Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire, where authors talk about things that never happened to people who don't exist. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. You can check out my books and social media at mindymcginnis.com and visit the Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire blog at writerwriterpantsonfire.com. Due to time and money constraints, changes will be coming to the podcast in the month of November. Episodes will be airing bi-weekly, and I'll be moving to a non-guest format. If you'd like to suggest topics or have questions you'd like answered about writing and publishing, feel free to email me at mindy at mindymcginnis.com or tweet at mindymcginnis. As always, if you'd like to support the podcast, you can donate through GoFundMe by searching for Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire, or check out the link in the episode credits. Today's guest is S. Gonzalez, who writes young adult contemporary books with twisty plots and a generous dose of romance featuring witty yet vulnerable characters. She is the author of The Law of Inertia, which releases October 16th, and her sophomore novel, Only Mostly Devastated, is slated for 2019. She joined me today to talk about landing her agent, Twitter contests, and balancing time difference while living in Australia and interacting with her American audience and publishing contacts. Walk through an enchanted autumn wood where leaves shine like red candy apples by day and blood is spilled by flesh-eating monsters at night. The rules are simple. Do not travel from the path. Do not linger after dark. Do not ignore the calling. The Wood by Chelsea Babolsky. Many of my listeners are aspiring authors, and they like to hear about the agent hunt of authors who have landed them. So tell us about your agent hunt and how you landed her. My first book, I didn't actually get an agent for, so I queried that for about maybe three or four months, 60-odd agents, and didn't find anyone. So I wrote my second book quite quickly in about, it was about a month and a half. (laughs) I haven't done that since, but it was a really, really good experience. I just kind of felt like that book was different, so I was really confident when I was querying it. I actually didn't query it for very long because what happened was there was this competition called The Writer's Voice. I entered into that, got into that, and another author, Alexa Dunn, saw my entry in that, contacted me, and she was like, oh, you know, this sounds really interesting. Can I read it? And I was like, oh, okay, (laughs) absolutely. So I sent it through to her, and she kind of contacted me saying, hey, I've got this friend. She's an agent. She might be really interested in having a look at this. So she kind of gave my current agent, Mo, um, she gave Mo a heads up. and. At the same time, there was a competition called Kid Pit, a pitch competition on Twitter. So I pitched through that and Mo ended up liking two of my different tweets. She thought that it was two different books. I think it took her about a week or two to read it and get back to me. And yeah, she offered and it was really, really super exciting. Of course, I had to do the offer call at about 1am in the morning. So, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. Australian life. That time change, we were saying just before I started recording, it is 10 a.m. for you. It is 8 p.m. for me. (laughs) I want to come back to that idea of the time change and how you deal with that in terms of the publishing industry and your American audience. But I want (laughs) to talk a little bit more about competitions that you were talking about. Quite a few authors that I interview talk about a door being open for them 
through contests and uh, Twitter pitches and things like that Mm. rather than the regular query process. So if you could talk a little bit more about that experience and whether or not it was refreshing for you to try try Mm. something different, something outside of the query letter process. When I was querying, I loved them. I wasn't particularly successful with my first book when it came to getting into competitions, but with the second, um, I think I got into Query Combat and The Writer's Voice around the same time. Um, I found them just really excellent opportunities to meet other authors, but to also get feedback from authors who were a lot more experienced than I was, who had these really great suggestions, a lot of encouragement. So yeah, I thought there were really, really valuable opportunities. And then the pitch contests, there were a lot of fun and I think pretty good opportunity for agents to, I suppose, look at a whole bunch of different pitches in really rapid succession. So you're getting that interest quite quickly as opposed to traditional querying, which can take a lot longer. Um, I wouldn't say that one's better than the other by any means. I know lots and lots of people who have gotten an agent through traditional querying. However, I think that contest had that added element of being able to make friends and being able to see what other people were up to. And just that feeling of community was really strong. I never did Twitter contests because Twitter no? wasn't a big thing until later into my agent journey. Blogs were a bigger thing when I first started. And so bloggers would do competitions with agents looking at entries and things like that. And they were fun. It was nice to do something different. You're right. The mm. immediacy is great. I think that competitions are a lovely attempt at something different, something new and you know, you can, you can get your hopes crushed so many ways. Why not try them all? <laughs> exactly. Have some variety in there. <laughs> Back to the time difference. You live and work in Australia. Do you yes. ever find time and location differences interfering with your American audiences and the publishing industry? So, and you said before you had to take a phone call at 1 a.m. So how do you manage those things being on an entirely different continent? A big part of it has been me just having to suck it up a little bit um, because most of the people that I'm going to be interacting with or speaking with, um, they're going to be in an American time zone. Not all the time, but a lot of the time. Twitter chats, they often happen when I should be doing something else or when I should be fast asleep. You know, for example, I've set alarms for 5am in the morning before just to jump on and join in with a chat that I think is pretty important that I'm there. I belong to a few different Slack groups. For example, you know, this group chat a whole bunch of friends who are all talking about something and then I wake up and I'm like oh wow what an interesting conversation and everyone's like oh no we're done we talked about that five hours ago and (laughs) (laughs) there is like a little bit of a sense of I suppose missing out because just when Twitter's taking off just when everyone's getting up and getting interactive I'm on my way to bed but I think at the same time you know you can make it work. And I have been making it work. I still have a lot of people that I chat to in America and we kind of just work around the time zones. There's this really nice sweet spot, I think, in my mornings, which is right now where you guys are all kind of chilling, maybe on your computers, maybe on your phones, whatever. And I've had enough time to get up so I'm not a zombie. And that's that really sweet spot where we can actually chat. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Personally, I struggle so much with 
time differences just in the U.S. Because yes. like tomorrow I'm flying to St. Louis oh, yeah. and then back. And I'm just like, I don't know what time it'll be there when I get there and what time it'll be when I get home. Yeah. I, I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. So the fact that you, <laughs> like when we were just emailing, you gave me the times that were good for you in EST because you just knew <laughs> that you had to operate on that level. You just automatically translate. I could tell you what the time is in EST pretty much any time. I'm a mentor in also mental match. And, mm-hmm. uh, we got told, oh, you know, the, the chat's going to be at this time, but it wasn't EST. It was a time that was just completely unfamiliar to me. It was just really hard for me for some reason. And I ended up being there for the chat about an hour early. Yeah, where is everyone? And then I realized that I'd set an alarm at three when I should have set it at four. Oh, my God. So oh. it's not always, <laughs> not always the easiest. But, yeah, you guys... America's huge. You guys have that huge, huge jump when you fly from one side to the other. Well, and then we have daylight savings. You guys have daylight savings? Yes, and I think it is coming up really soon, so I'm excited. Okay, yeah. So you do the fallback. Yeah, you guys have it? Yeah, we do it too. But I just Google it all the time. I'll be like, what time is it here if I am here? <laughs> because I don't freaking know. Oh, how did people do it before that? I have no idea. They, they didn't mess with this shit. That's how they did it. They just showed up. <laughs> <laughs> they just didn't. Yeah. No, they didn't do this. Coming up, why publish with an initial standing in for her first name? And writing about mental illnesses responsibly. In the 1950s, a publishing phenomenon known as lesbian pulp fiction swept the United States with supposedly scandalous lesbian romance novels selling millions of copies at truck stops and drugstores nationwide. Now, a new YA novel set in the world of lesbian pulp is coming from author Robin Talley. 17-year-old fanfic writer Abby discovers an ebook of a vintage novel and becomes obsessed with the story and with tracking down its author who mysteriously disappeared. But Abby isn't prepared for what she finds. To pre-order Pulp, go to robintally.com. Let's talk about your publishing career. Your books are all published with an initial standing for your first name, which is S. So they're all published under yes. the name S. Gonzalez. So is there a reason why you chose to write with an initial standing in for your first name? My first name's Sophie. I don't necessarily try to <laughs> hide that per se, but um, I initially was writing um, under Sophie Gonzalez. I think my first deal for Law of Inertia was announced as Sophie Gonzalez. As my day job, I work within mental health. I think it was towards the end of 2017, a couple of things happened that made me realize that it can be quite important to just try to separate the lines between my writing career and my mental health career mm-hmm. a little bit for various reasons. I don't want people to, I suppose, mix the two up or conflate the two. So I can't practice under S. Gonzalez or a pseudonym in my day job, but maybe if I if I switch to an initial when I write, that will, I suppose, help 
separate the boundaries a little bit more clearly there. Mm -hmm. So that's the decision that I made. And I I called Mo and I was like, okay, you know, I know we've got a whole bunch of profiles with Sophie, but can we now go switch them all to S? And she was just, she was really supportive, really helpful. So that happened really quickly. And since then it's been S Gonzalez. Mm -hmm. I do think it's a smart move to have, even for yourself, just for your own mental processes of your own different outlets of your personality to have S. Gonzalez and then, of course, (laughs) your actual self. And I also think, too, as a female writer who, from what I can see, is writing with male main characters, I think there can be a lot of benefit to using that initial as a first name as well. A part of me is really conscious as well that there are some people that might want to use an initial to give the impression that they're a male writer and there's you know there's so much to unpack there it's like okay for one obviously I would not want to do that at all I'm not trying to mislead anyone I've got my my pictures there quite clearly I'm very publicly a female it does make me laugh a little bit and it's not you it's everyone we all do it but just how using an initial a lot of people do see an initial and they assume that it's a male writing it. Yeah. I mean, that's just society. It is. And it's it's not right. Uh-huh. I think JK Rowling as well mentioned that she was kind of encouraged to use initials for that reason, because she was writing a book um, that was supposed to appeal to a larger audience. And of, of course, only male authors can write books that appeal to uh, all genders, right? <laughs> That's a whole other topic, but yeah. Well, it is, but it's a great topic because especially when you are writing for teens or young adults, but Mm. what comes across for Mm. me is when it's certain genres that I see a lot of initials. And I'm at the point now, just because I've met so many women that use initials, when I see initials, I actually assume it is a female writer. I know that women tend to go for the initial because unfortunately in some genres, the male Mm. author is going to sell and the female is not. There are occasionally male readers that don't (laughs) want to read female authors, but I don't see that in the younger set as much anymore. I see it in their parents and in their grandparents when they're buying them books, Mm. when I'm Mm, hand selling at a table or whatever, I go through a lot of convincing grandparents that their grandson will like this book, (laughs) even though I, (laughs) we swear. Yeah. It's awful. (laughs) I know. And you know, that bias does exist, but I think that you're right. You're right. The next generation is really stepping up and they're doing a really great job at returning some of that equality or not even returning it, bringing up um, some extra equality there. And they're a lot more open, you know, they're interested, they're exploring things and, you know, it's really great to see. Yeah, absolutely. It is. They're definitely more open-minded and that's a beautiful thing. I want to talk quickly about (laughs) your day job because you mentioned it. So you are a mental health professional Can you talk a little bit about how that has impacted some of your research or the topics that you choose to write about in your fiction? A, it opens me up to so many experiences. I'm really quite aware of the kind of issues that are really affecting people, particularly teenagers, adolescents, children. 
I'm really, really passionate about mental health, about supporting that. And I guess one of the benefits when it came to research was that The Law of Inertia, my debut, I wrote a lot of that from personal experience. You know, working in the industry means that I actually had this really fantastic opportunity to talk to a lot of professionals about what I was writing and getting that feedback and um, I suppose brainstorming in some ways, you know. So I know a lot of counsellors, I know a lot of psychologists, really, really valuable to be able to sit down and say, hi, you know, this is what I'm trying to address here. How do we do it Mm -hmm. safely? What kind of guidelines do I need to be aware of? Particularly the guidelines for um, journalism and media when it comes to discussion of mental illness. You know, there are a lot of things that we need to be aware of. What kind of things can be triggering? How to go about that, how to address that, Mm -hmm. what kind of things can be harmful and how to avoid that, which is just so important, particularly when you're writing about something like this. Let's just roll right on into talking about the law of inertia then. It deals with suicide and that is a really tough topic to tackle, especially for teens. How do you go about talking about these things and writing about these things without, as you're saying, triggering or even just giving the wrong message, how do you, or quite the opposite, how do you go about writing about this without coming off as didactic to your younger audience? A lot of it did come from personal experience, which means that, you know, I suppose I had a lot to draw Mm. on. It wasn't just based on articles that you might see online when you're, you know, Googling mental illness, for example. Um, There's a lot of things to do with that experience that, um, you wouldn't necessarily find online. It's the kind of thing that you would experience personally and say, hey, why did no one tell me it was like this? Or why did no one um, point this out as a possible thing that I should be looking out for? I wanted to include a lot of those less commonly addressed things in the law of inertia. In the mental health field, we, we know that there's a certain way to talk about mental illness, particularly suicide. Um, we know that talking about suicide doesn't increase someone's chances of suicide ideation or, you know, wanting to attempt. We know that it's really important to make sure that that dialogue's happening. Checking in on someone, we know that asking someone if they've had thoughts doesn't increase their chances of, like I said, going through with anything. And it actually increases the chance that they'll feel comfortable to speak with you about it because a lot of people, they don't want to bring that up. On the other side of things, you have to be really careful about how you talk about it. So just talking about it, that's fine, but you have to be so careful not to glorify it and romanticize it. I made a big point in The Law of Inertia, for example, that romance does not cure mental illness. It's not a cure for mental illness. You can experience romance and it doesn't make it invalid, but it's not going to magically change everything. You know, the things that can improve your situation are things like um, family and friend support and therapy and medication. Those kind of things are very important. Romance is, you know, it's nice, but it's not, it's not a cure. So that's something that's really important. And that's something that I think it can be difficult to tiptoe around that correctly when you're writing books for teens that involve mental illness. We've all seen books that maybe don't handle it as sensitively as maybe they should have. And 
you know, you have to be careful to not give that message that, oh, you know, it's, it's, it's really beautiful thing. Suffering's not beautiful. There's nothing beautiful about pain, you know, that it's something that we want to help is something that we want to be able to support people to improve from and learn to manage. I was going to ask you as a follow-up, and I don't, I certainly don't need you to name titles or anything like that, but as a mental health professional, Mm. when you are reading for pleasure, do you often come across, not necessarily just for teens even, just in fiction, do you come across Mm. reactions or stereotypes or any type of situation involving a mental illness where you're just cringing because it's so inaccurate? (laughs) Yeah. Um, My absolute pet peeve is the demonization of Mm. mental illness. I just can't stand that one. Uh, Mentally ill people are more likely to be the victim Mm -hmm. of a crime than they are to be the instigator of a crime. Um, So, yeah, I really, really hate those plot twists that reveal that, oh, like the bad guy was mentally ill all along, ha, it's like, oh, no, no, we we don't want to do that, guys. Someone who dies to teach someone else a lesson, you know, because I think that there's a lot of value in books that explore um, the aftermath of suicide and how the people left behind can process it. But, you know, there are certain ways of dealing with it. Some books do it really well and some books, they kind of make it look like it was maybe a good thing (laughs) that the suicide occurred and it's like no (laughs) no and it didn't teach them powerful important life lessons like no it's it's a bad situation and you know it needs to be portrayed like that so that's a really (sighs) that's another one that's a bit hard I've also seen a lot of books that that talk about hallucinations and delusions and it couldn't be clearer that they haven't actually spoken to anyone within the industry because they'll totally conflate hallucinations with delusions or they'll miss the fact that visual hallucinations are significantly less common than audio hallucinations or they'll confuse hallucinations with distortions and I'm I'm reading it I'm like what no but I'm sure everyone else is just like, oh, wow, yeah, we're learning so much. And I'm, I just want to like go like, no, please don't think that this is, this is what it's right. actually like because it's kind of not. It's the problem with knowing. Yeah. One of my pet peeves, and I don't obviously have any kind of degree or certification in mental illness, but I do, I've done a lot of mm. research and I know enough to know that there aren't as many psychopaths out there as people want you to think. Uh-huh. Absolutely. And- Absolutely. And of course... There is no such diagnosis as right. psychopath in uh, the DSM. Um, but, you know, when, when they are discussed in media or in stories, you're right, like they'll usually mm-hmm. be demonized. But, I think yeah. the word psychopath has just moved into common mm. language use and people don't really know what it actually means. And they use it in a lot of people, at least in exactly. America, a lot of people use it as a substitute for yeah. a sociopath. And yeah. I'm just like... Yeah. Well, those are actually two different things. And so that's something that (laughs) I kind of struggle with just from being a total amateur at mental illness. I'm just like, no, that's actually wrong Mm. what you're doing there. I live in the country. I'm a farmer's daughter, always surrounded by farm and farm life. And movies and books get farms wrong consistently. Always wrong. Like, 
just yes, corn yes. is never right. I have this huge bitch on Twitter about how movies and corn. Oh God, really? no. they, corn is never right ever. But see, that's <laughs> the kind of thing where it's like I know, so I can't even watch a movie that has exactly. any sort of farming element because I'm like, dude, yes. you have no idea what you're doing right now. And so, <laughs> imagine for you, where it's a much more, yeah, yeah. A much more of a sexy plot line when it deals with mental illness, or at least sexy in the pitch and the sell of you know a movie or a book. Oh my God, it must be so difficult. I can't even imagine. So a movie that had a farm in it, I'd be like, oh, that looks legit. Yeah, wow, look at that corn growing. <laughs> it looks peaceful. <laughs> I'm learning so much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> must be right. Seems nice. Oh, I should do that. God. Lastly, rom-coms for queer people and where to find S. Gonzalez online. Tell us about your upcoming title. Only Mostly Devastated, because this one sounds like a fun Grease-style kind of setup. Tell us a little bit about that. It really couldn't be much more different to The Law of Inertia. Um, it's it's a classic rom-com, and it was so much fun to write. A guy, his name's Ollie, he has this classic summer romance, um, whirlwind romance at the lake. And then due to family illness, he finds out that he's actually going to be remaining in North Carolina rather than going back home to San Jose. When he arrives at school, he has no idea that the uh, object of his summer affection, Will, is going to be attending his school. They run into each other and Will is nothing like the guy that he knew over summer not the nicest person all of a sudden and Ollie is like what a lot of fun writing only mostly devastated it's almost like an homage to a whole bunch of different traditional rom-com even though a lot of these tropes are quite overdone in say straight Mm -hmm. white fiction we're only just now starting to get those rom-com kind of stories for queer people. You know, we've never really been able to see ourselves have those kind of stories. So, you know, particularly when I wrote something so heavy, um, even though The Law of Inertia has a lot of hope in it, it was like, no, I just want this to be um, mm-hmm. fun. So that's what I aimed for. And that, I think awesome. it is fun. I Well, as soon as I read the pitch, I, I was just like, oh, my gosh. This sounds awesome. This sounds so funny and just, we need those <laughs> books right now here in the U.S. Please keep writing them. To all the boys I loved before, I loved that mm-hmm. book when it came out. It's such a good time for that and Love, Simon and you know, all of these like really great, diverse rom-coms to be coming to the screen. And, you know, it's like, yes, this is such a breath of fresh air. It's so much nicer. It is. I agree. Last thing, tell us what is up next for you. I know you've got only Mostly Devastated coming up, but if you're working on anything new or anything else you want to share with us and also where listeners can find you online. I'm actually at one of those, that weird spot where I'm trying to figure out what my next Uh uh, width is going to be. My next work in progress. I keep on settling on an idea and then changing. I'm one of those people where if you tell me that I have to write a certain thing, suddenly I want to write everything about that. So, so, you know, it's it's actually quite hard to do those follow-up books because there's just that extra pressure, just knowing that, okay, my next book, it's, it's got to be something similar-ish to the ones before it because your audience, the people who enjoy your work, they're going to want to read 
something and be able to look at that and say, yeah, this is definitely Bias Gonzalez. I can see this. This is something that I'm interested in because I was interested in her last mm-hmm. book as well. Uh, I've got so many ideas, so many things, and hopefully hopefully one of them will turn into a full book sometime soon. <laughs> the Law of Inertia comes out mm-hmm. on the 16th um, and a lot of people have received their pre-orders. So a lot of my friends now have their hands on it, which is really mm-hmm. exciting. I'm most active mm-hmm. on Twitter as S. Gonzalez Author. My website, which is www.sgonzalesauthor.com. My newsletter, I'm actually going to be putting out um, another one soon. Updates, um, snippets, competitions and giveaways and exclusive content like I do a lot of drawing. I am not crazy talented, but I have fun. (laughs) (laughs) So that's what that's good for. Um, So, you know, you can sign up for that on my website if you're interested I'd love it if you could follow me on Twitter. I love being interactive on Twitter and meeting people and I'd love to meet some new people. So, yay. Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire is produced by Mindy McGinnis. Music by Jack Corbel. If you find the podcast or blog helpful, please consider making a donation by visiting gofundme.com and searching for Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire. Or visit the blog by going to writerwriterpantsonfire.blogspot.com. Click on the podcast tab and then the PayPal button. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. Join me next week for another episode of Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire, where writers talk about things that never happened to people that don't exist.